Well, good morning. My name is Zach. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I've been the preaching intern here at Highland Park this summer, and it has been a great time. My goodness, I am so thankful to be a part of your church family. You've been so good to me. You have housed me. You fed me. I've loved living in Tulsa, and I've loved being a part of Highland Park, and that is thanks in a large part to all of y'all, and so thank you very much. Uh, for having me here. It's been a great experience. Um, if you've been with us for the last uh, several weeks, um, actually through the last couple months, we've been in a series called Dethroned at our church, and the tagline for that is, Only One King Shall Stand. And we've been going through the books of First and Second Kings and looking at the different kings of Israel, the idea being that really, in the end, no human king and no earthly thing can measure up. Really, only one king shall stand in the end, and that is God himself. So in the first part of our series, we looked at the different crowns that we need to take off. Um, We looked at the crown of greed. We looked at the crown of self-worship and passivity and the different kings that represented those. And we said we need to take those things off. Those make a bad ruler and we lay those at the feet of the true king. The second part of our series said, well, what does the true king look like then? If these are things that make a bad ruler... What are the attributes of the true king? And so we looked at God's faithfulness. We looked at his presence in mountains and valleys. Um, We looked at his justice. We looked at his concern for the hungry with the widow and Elisha. Um, We looked at several stories such as these that illustrate this is what the true king looks like. And lately, we've been in the third part of our series. And this is sort of our response to the king When we meet the true king, how do we respond? It's sort of the applicational portion. And so we looked at Naaman and his obedience, even reluctant obedience, and he was healed and he was cleansed. That's how to get help. We looked last week at a sermon from Brian about keeping the faith, even in the face of hopeless odds. You remember a king asked a dumb question, why should I wait on the Lord any longer? And the answer to that was, Well, because he's delivered you time and time again, and he's proven faithful. And we looked at how he used even the most unlikely people to deliver Israel. Um, The the message of that being that God will deliver even through unforeseen ways and through unforeseen people. Maybe even people like you and me. What do we do in response to the true king? We keep the faith. Well, today we're going to continue in that third part of our series. And today's topic is allegiance. What is allegiance? The dictionary defines allegiance as the loyalty of a citizen to his or her government or of a subject to his or her sovereign or the loyalty or devotion to some person, group, cause, or the like. Now, one of my favorite pictures of allegiance is actually from ancient history, and this is the story of Socrates. Some of you may have heard it before. Socrates, um, a prominent Greek philosopher, his philosophy laid the foundation for much of Western uh, philosophy today. Um, Something you need to know about Socrates is he was loyal to Athens, and he was dedicated to making her better and serving her which sometimes meant that he criticized her where he thought she was wrong. And as you can imagine, this did not go down very well with the rulers of Athens. And then when they decided that they didn't like his philosophy, they held trial and they condemned him to death by drinking a mixture of poison hemlock. Now, Socrates had opportunities to escape and get out of this. He was given the option of exile. His friends even bribed the guards and said, you can go away, but Socrates said no. My loyalty is to Athens and my allegiance is to her. I will serve her and I will follow her laws even when they condemn me to death. And so he drank the poison gladly and died an allegiant citizen of Athens. 
That is some allegiance. And you might say that allegiance is what you're willing to die for. And that actually wouldn't be a bad definition for allegiance, uh, whether it be a soldier on the battlefield or whether it be a mama bear that's defending her cubs. It's not hard to find some pictures that illustrate allegiance in real life. Um, But our culture also sort of has its own definitions and pictures of allegiance. And we see these on the news every day. These take the form sometimes of strikes and political protests and political screaming matches or people just spewing hate and vitriol at one another or people tearing each other down on social media. And our cultural image sort of looks like people choosing to take a stand somewhat arbitrarily based on what they think is right or what you feel and standing firm on it, and you vehemently oppose anyone who disagrees with you. Now, while not everything is wrong with that definition, obviously it falls short because it breaks down into a picture of hatred for your fellow man. And sometimes today, allegiance builds walls rather than inviting people in. And allegiance tears people down rather than bringing them up, which is unfortunate. Unfortunately, religious people have often even been associated with this sort of allegiance. And so in the minds of many today, the word religious brings to mind words like bigot and hater and self-righteous, hypocrite, Pharisee, and unfortunately, far too many people who claim to be followers of Jesus have rightfully earned this sort of labeling for themselves, which is ironic because it's these very people, the religious elite, the people that turned down their nose at others, that Jesus most harshly criticized when he was on the earth. And it was the sinners, the messy people, the outcast, the very people that these people despised that Jesus chose to spend most of his time with. Now, Jesus had allegiances, to be sure, but it wasn't to a system, it wasn't to regulations, it wasn't to people, but it was to God himself, who unfortunately, if you read your New Testament, you realize these other people, these Pharisees, they didn't even know God, the God Jesus was allegiant to. Now, sometimes God's way of loving people will turn our religious worlds upside down. Now, to be clear, God does call us to have allegiances. He calls us to draw up lines in the sand and decide where we stand. But we are not called to have allegiances, Christians, to religious ideals, to certain codes of conduct, or even to moral standards. But instead, our allegiance, like Jesus, is to be to God, who consistently throughout Scripture insists on knowing us deeply at the very points at which we are flawed. And he calls us into a loving and trusting relationship with him that far surpasses any superficial manner of living that we might have. And so I want to define allegiance for you today for the sake of this sermon. This is the first point in your bulletin. Allegiance today is where I choose to place my trust and where I choose to place my hope. It's where I choose to place my trust and it's where I choose to place my hope. To use more common language, it's when all my chips are in. Yes, that's a point in your bulletin. Where all my chips are in. When all my chips are in on something and all my bets are on that, that thing or person has my allegiance. And church... You need to know this morning that when it comes down to it, at the end of your life, you will be defined not by all your highs and your lows, but by your allegiance. You will be judged, that's your blank, by your allegiance. 
And to show you this this morning, I want to take you for a walk through the book of Kings. Our text today is 2 Kings chapters 8 through 21, which is quite a chunk. Um, that's where we're going to be. Um, I was actually pretty glad after reading through it that Brian gave me this piece because it paints a pretty good picture of allegiances well-placed and allegiances misplaced. Um, so you can turn there if you like. We're going to be, I'm kind of be going, going to be going rapid fire through several different sections. And so in those instances, I'll just ask you to listen. Other times we'll read certain passages and those will be on the screen. And so you're welcome to follow along there. Uh, but let's get into our text today and look at allegiance. Second Kings 8 through 21. The first character that I'd like to start with this morning is every single evil king of Israel. <laughs> Now, um, you need to know for the sake of our story that at this point, Israel is divided. You have the kingdom of Israel to the north, who is portrayed as consistently persisting in their sin. And you have Judah to the south, who for the most part is a contrast. They are usually pretty good with some flaws and hiccups here and there, but there's a contrast painted here. Um, So the kingdom of Israel is divided. Israel to the north persists in their sin, and Judah to the south does a little bit better, and they tend to follow the Lord, not without a few bumps. Um, the author is very clear when he writes, and he wants to make this evident, and he, he certainly does. He does it through repetition, and I want to show you a little bit of uh, what I'm talking about. So um, I'm going to read through some sections of Scripture, and I just want you to listen and see if you can discern a pattern. I'm going to start somewhat arbitrarily in Second Kings chapter 13, verse 1, and read to you about some of the kings. In the 23rd year of Joash, son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord by following the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, and he did not turn away from them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and for a long time he kept them under the power of Hazael, king of Aram, and Ben-Hadad, his son. Ouch. Jehoahaz was not a very good king, but let's see about the next one. Verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, son of Jehoaz, and I apologize for the silly names, but that's just how they are in the text. (laughs) He became king of Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. 14, verse 10, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, is king of Israel. He reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 15, 8, Zechariah reigned six months. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 15, 18, Menahem reigned 10 years, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Pekahiah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Pekah did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Hosea reigned nine years, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And after some 250 plus years, finally, after the reign of Hosea, the king of Samaria, God allows the king of Samaria to come and besiege Israel, excuse me, and capture it. Now, did you pick up on a pattern there? Yeah, I thought so. That's not unintentional. The word I came across the most while studying for this is a litany, and that is what it is. It is a list of kings of Israel, and the author wants us to know something. And when I read through this portion of scripture, I pick up on two things. Number one. The kings and the people of the north were evil, and they consistently just insisted on persisting. That's a lot of cysts, isn't it? They persisted in their sin. But number two, and you wouldn't pick this up from a list like this that I just read, but you would if you read the text. Despite the sin of the people of the north, 
God continued to be good to them and to deliver them for a long time. Man, I don't know about you, but one thing I notice about that list is it's long. And one commentator says that the only reason this list is allowed to go on so long and he lets the kings of Israel keep on sinning and he keeps showing them goodness is because of his great mercy. And that is true. Unless we only pick up on the implied goodness of God, sometimes it's right there. It's evident in the text. Let me read you a passage of scripture, and this will be on the screen, from the reign of Jeroboam II. He was the third king that I mentioned. In 2 Kings 14, starting in verse 24, it says, Jeroboam did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel, from Labo Hamath to the Dead Sea, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. That is to say, he restored some of the land of Israel that had been captured by their enemies. But then catch this. Verse 26. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. God continues to be good to the sinful people. Did you catch that? Jeroboam was an evil king, and the people persisted in doing evil, and yet the Lord has compassion on them. And maybe you're someone here this morning whose allegiance and devotion has never been to the Lord. And whether you think you're doing wrong or evil or not, you've never given God a second thought, and yet God has continued to bless you. And you need to know this morning that Scripture says that God is slow to anger, and He is abounding in love and compassion. And He sends His reign on the righteous as well as on the wicked. But it also says to seek Him while He may be found. And if you are experiencing good things in this life, or if, or if you're not, you need to recognize that God is good to us so that we might turn to him and follow. And you need to know that at the end of your life, you will be judged not by your highs and by your lows, not by what you did, not by your success, but by your allegiance. And will your allegiance be to the Lord? Let's keep going to see whether that is really true or not. Unfortunately, Jeroboam experienced the blessings of the Lord, and his allegiance still was not to God. Um, And so he earned the epitaph, did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and that was all he was remembered for. He was judged only by his allegiance. And so we see in 2 Kings 17, after 250 years of evil kings, finally we reach Israel's downfall. In 2 Kings 17.5 we read, Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, And for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gosan, and in the cities of the Medes. That is, he took them to a faraway place. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. Lest there be any doubt, he illustrates to us and he tells us plainly, this occurred because they sinned. Who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. He had been so good to them from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. That is to say, despite God's goodness, they decided to try to place their allegiance 
elsewhere. They trusted in the gods of the land who could not deliver them, despite having a God who already had delivered them. And who, if you read way back in Deuteronomy, before they enter the promised land, God gives them promises. He says, I want to bless you in this land you come into. And if you, if you just follow in the ways I've outlined for you, oh my goodness, I'll bless your socks off. But if you don't, you're going to have problems, and I'm going to let you see that the things that you want to be allegiant to will not deliver you, and you will experience the lack of my blessing, and you are going to go into exile. And so after much patience and much mercy, Israel goes into exile, and God delivers on his promise. That's character number one, every single evil king of Israel. Now, I want to go to character number two, which is the kings of Judah. This is the contrast. If Israel persisted in doing evil, Judah persisted in choosing the Lord for the most part. So let me read you a bit about the kings of Judah. Now, the first two kings, admittedly, are bad. (laughs) Um, Starting in 8, verse 18, we read about Jehoram. He says, He followed the ways of the kings of Israel. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. 8.27, Ahaziah also did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But then a guy named Jehu comes along. He kills those guys, and then some of their sons become king, and they reign for the next 40 years. 12.2, Joash became king of Israel and reigned 40 years. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. All the years Jehoiada the priest instructed him. The high places, however, were not removed. That is, the places where the people worshipped foreign gods, the places where they placed their allegiance elsewhere. But he followed in the ways of the Lord. 14.3, Amaziah reigned 29 years, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father David had done. In everything, he followed the example of his father Joash. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. 15.3, Azariah, also known as Uzziah, reigned 52 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. 15.8, Jotham reigned 25 years, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. 16.2, Ahaz, another bad king, reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as God. He followed in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Lest you think these allegiances were harmless, that they were not. Ahaz was an evil king. But then, oh my goodness, chapter 18, verse 3, Hezekiah. And boy, is Hezekiah a good king. Probably the best in scripture after David. And it says... Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, unlike every other king before him, smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. Do you remember allegiance is where my trust is and it's where my hope is. It's where all my chips are in. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. And let me suggest this morning that Hezekiah is the epitome of allegiance in the story of the kings. Allegiance to the Lord. I don't have time to go through his story this morning, but I encourage you to go to re- 
read it in chapters 18 and following, Hezekiah has an incredible story, trusting in the Lord in the face of insurmountable odds, and the Lord delivers. He had no visual reason to trust in the Lord, and yet he did. His allegiance was well-placed, and that's how he was remembered. The author of Kings writes to show us that in the end, you will be remembered only by your allegiance. Now, unfortunately, after Hezekiah, we have two more bad kings. Menahem and, this is embarrassing, I actually forget his other name, but you're going to have to trust me that he's bad. Two more bad kings. It says, (laughs) yeah, um, they did more evil than all the nations that the Lord had driven out before them. And at this point, we read that Judah actually succumbs to the same fate as Israel. Some 100 years later, Judah, too, misplaces her allegiances, and they follow in the ways of the kings of Israel and of the nations, and they, too, are sent into exile. So when I read the story of the king of, kings of Judah, I see two things. One, they did better than the kings of Israel, but two, in the end, they still misplaced their allegiances. And boy, is this where this story speaks to us, because we are all people of misplaced allegiances. Romans 3 says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there's good news because all are justified freely by his grace, it says, through faith in Christ Jesus. So to understand how this story might speak to us, people of misplaced allegiances, and how we get from there in the Old Testament to that passage that I read in the New Testament— We need to understand how this story spoke to the original people who were reading it. Because is this guy writing just to be a downer? Like, hey, you did evil and you done messed up. No, we don't need another person to tell us that. They don't need someone to tell them that. This compiler of the kings writes with a purpose. If he's telling the history of how Israel went into exile, that means that the people hearing this now, when he wrote, are currently in exile. That means they're in the lowest place they could be. They're in a hopeless spot. They're sort of at rock bottom, and they're asking, how did we get here? And so he writes to say, how did you get here? Well, the last 300 years of history, you see, while you weren't thinking about God, God was still there, and you misplaced your allegiances. How did you get here? You broke the covenant. But that's not entirely unhopeful, because the implicit message is, you can still keep it. A person in exile in Israel at the time wouldn't have just heard, well, God is mad at you. They would have looked at this story and seen, oh, God was there the whole time. He was with me, and we missed it. Um, he was there. In fact, he was in control, and even he's with us here. If you read in the prophets, you see that God declares time and time again that he still loves Israel and Judah, and he intends to deliver them. He has a purpose for them, even in their exile. Sometimes God lets us experience the consequences of our misplaced allegiance so that we will return to him. He promises them a Savior and a Messiah who will deliver them from their exile. This book is hopeful. It even ends with the king of Judah being released from prison in exile and given a prominent position, which would have given the people hope, as if to say, God has not forgotten about you, even where you are. You may have stumbled, but he's still with you. You can still choose to follow him. So how does that text speak to us? I want to suggest that there are three groups Um, at least of you sitting here this morning, that this text speaks to. Um, And the first one, uh, you might expect this to come at the end of a sermon, but actually 
I'm going to do it here. The first group that this speaks to is the group of you who are feeling a bit like Israel. Maybe you are at rock bottom, and you're asking, how did I get here? How did I get here um, in my marriage, with my family, with my job, just in my life? Like, I never thought I would be here. How did I arrive? And maybe there might be some of you in this room, this isn't all of you, who have arrived here because of a series of decisions that you've made, and you said, that will never happen to me, but now the Lord has allowed you to experience the consequences of your misplaced allegiances. And if so, this text speaks to you. There may be a group of you here, too, that are sort of like the suffering servant of the Lord, Job, who are at rock bottom, and you didn't do anything to get here. You're just experiencing the consequences of sin because we live in a fallen world. And you're asking, how did I get here? Did I sin my way here? No, maybe you didn't, but you're still experiencing brokenness. You're still at rock bottom, and so the hopefulness of this text still speaks to you. This text says three things to the people who are at rock bottom. One, God is here, or God is there. God is with you, and he always has been. Just as the people of Israel and Judah would have looked back and seen, he was there, oh my goodness, and he's here now. He's still doing things. Know that God is with you, no matter where you've been, no matter what situation you find yourself in. He is still there. And the second thing is that God is in control whether it looks like it or not. Do you remember last week the sermon that Brian preached and he asked us to keep the faith and he often delivers in ways we can never foresee? Keep the faith. He's in control. He's the one who sent Israel and Judah into exile and he's the one who eventually would bring them out. And then thirdly, this book is hopeful. Oh, God desires your allegiance. Sorry, that's the blank in your bulletin. God desires your allegiance. You might even cross that out if you want. God does desire your allegiance, but even more so, you'll be defined by your allegiance. That's what I want you to know this morning. You won't be defined by the mistakes you've made. You won't be defined by where you find yourself currently. You will be defined by whether in all the highs and lows of your intricate, complex, unique life, you decided to put your hope and your trust in the Lord who would deliver because none of these other things that we are tempted to put our hope in will, and we'll get there. The second group that this speaks to is what I like to call the faithful few. The faithful few. These are those of you whose allegiances are placed correctly. Your trust is in the Lord, and maybe this is some of you people who I mentioned above. Your allegiances are in the right place, and yet you're suffering, and you go, why? Or maybe you're someone who's not experiencing rock bottom right now, and you go, how does this text speak to me? Well, it says a couple things. One is don't fall to in love with Babylon. We live, the New Testament says, as aliens in a foreign world. We are like the people of Israel in exile, and we follow a king who is not of this earth, and therefore our allegiances are not to anything of this world. They are not to the place where we find ourselves currently. It's not to money. It's not to a job. It's not to a political party. Your hope and allegiance isn't even to being a good parent, to being good enough, not even to being a good person. Any humanist today can tell you to be good and to love people, but ultimately that allegiance won't get you through. Your allegiance is to God himself who loves you, who justifies wicked people, and you need to have your allegiance given to him, even in the moments when you don't measure up. Your allegiance is not to Babylon, so don't fall too in love with the things of this world. And two, don't stop taking hold of God. If you go back and read the story of Hezekiah, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you are in a place where you go, why should I keep waiting on the Lord? Keep 
taking hold of God. He will deliver, and at the end, you will be judged and defined only by your allegiance. And he will come through. Finally, there's the third group that this text speaks to and that I want to speak to this morning and that the Lord is speaking to this morning. And those, that is those of you here who say, well, that will never happen to me or this doesn't apply to me. Um, you are uh, hypothetically the Israelite in the land of Israel who says, well, my allegiance has never been to the God of Israel and I'm doing okay and I don't see the need for my allegiance to be the God of Israel. And you need to know that there are no exceptions Galatians 6 says that God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to the flesh will reap destruction, but whoever sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. And you need to know that if your confidence is in your money, or if it's in your looks, or if it's in your position, or if it's in succeeding, if it's in having the best family, or even just trying to be good, those things will fail you. There is a God who wants to know you, and there is a God who is worthy of your allegiance and will not fail you. And at the end of your life, you will be judged by your allegiance alone. And that is good news. That is good news. Why? Um, Because we, we we need a Savior. We need someone to rescue us. We are people of misplaced allegiances. Every one of us in here, believer or not, has put our hope in something else. And it's good to know that in the end, we will be defined not by our mistakes, not by our success, not by our failure, but by who we put our hope in. And God says he will justify us through Christ. Um, There's an image that I want to leave you with this morning, and I want to end with this. Um, There's two things. The first is the picture of an epitaph. Y'all are familiar with what an epitaph is? At the end of someone's life, um, it's kind of funny, but we try to sum up their life in just a statement which is sort of silly because an epitaph like he loved his family or he loved sports, I hope that isn't your epitaph, um, can't adequately summarize the complex life that someone lives. Um, But like an epitaph, you're going to be described by one thing and one thing only. And I hope you love your family. I hope you live a life where you enjoy things. But I hope at the end of your life, you were described as someone who on all the highs and lows and all your successes and failures trusted and hoped in the Lord. One of the best examples of this um, was seen this last week, and I asked uh, the family permission to share this, uh, but some of you were here on Monday for the funeral of Kevin Crosser. And if you were here or you knew Kevin, you know that Kevin led um, a a good life, a complex, intricate life. He could be remembered for many things, from being on the executive board of American Airlines to loving softball to being a loving father. And I'm told Kevin wasn't a perfect person. None of us are. But if you were here, you know from all the stories that you heard that Kevin was remembered and will be remembered and is known by God for one thing. And that is that he loved the Lord and he loved other people. He wanted people to know about the Lord. And at the end of your life, you will be known for one thing. And that is where your hope is, where your trust is. You will be judged by your allegiance. That's good news. Um, God is asking you to, if you haven't made this decision already in your life, to follow him. Some of you are feeling that call right now. And those of you who already know him, keep following him. If you're at rock bottom, let God be your rock. If you're following, keep following. If you think you have it figured out, you don't. God wants your allegiance. Um, And the good news is we have hope 
uh, through Jesus. And if you'd like to talk to someone about that, if you'd like to pray with somebody, if you just need prayer for your life, we will have some leaders um, and pastors up front and elders who would be glad to pray with you um, and talk to you more about those things. Um, But uh, for now, let me just leave you with, um, at the end of your life, you'll be judged by your allegiance. God is worthy of it. He's good. Um, So uh, let us pray and then continue to worship. Father, we love you. Um, We thank you for this picture in the Kings, um, this reminder that um, nothing else will deliver. And when we try to place our hope in other things, those things will fail. But you are our rock. You are worthy of our hope and of our trust. And you call us to you. Father, sometimes you let us experience the hard consequences of our decisions in order to turn back to you. Sometimes you call us to be faithful even in the midst of hard times, even when we're trusting you. Sometimes, Father, you call us just to begin to put our trust in you in the beginning. And so, Father, I pray that you would move in this room, that uh, you would move in the hearts of uh, the people who are hearing this here today, um, and that we would choose to obey and to follow the prompting and leading of your Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for Jesus in whom we have hope, uh, and we know that we are right with you. We love you, Father, and it's in your heavenly name I pray. Amen.